I'm delighted to be here tonight in the cozy confines of Artifact Coffee to continue our Origin Speaker series. I'm Spike Jurdy, the owner of Woodbury Kitchen here in Baltimore. This gathering is intended to advance the conversation about food, its origins, and what is happening around our food system in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. We started our first restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen, with a commitment to local sourcing and now work closely with more than 60 different farmers and producers throughout the region. We supply our four restaurants and our canning and butchery operations with meat, eggs, grains, fish and shellfish, cooking oil, cheeses and produce, literally everything we need to feed our guests. The hope is that this series will shine a light on the work that this community is doing in our area. The conversation is held monthly at Artifact, our coffee shop, in the heart of the Woodbury neighborhood in Baltimore. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Origins. Hope you had a great uh, Valentine's Day yesterday. I was sick as a dog, so <laughs> it's no fun. <laughs> Say it again. Oh. <laughs> um, we thought this topic of natural sweeteners was apropos, given our sort of... Uh, our focus on sweets this month, month. So it's great to see so many of you again. And actually, this is amazing. There's a lot of new faces. Could I just ask how many of you, this is your first Origins? That's awesome. Very good. Awesome. So uh, I'm Dana Slater. I'm the producer of Origins. And um, this is our 23rd uh, event in the series. Um, so if you'd like to search the other 22 events, um, you can find them on Heritage Public Radio and just uh, search for Origins, and you'll find all the events we've done in the past. Um, we have an amazing panel tonight. Um, they're still discussing business. <laughs> um, to discuss natural sweeteners. Um, I'll let Rachel talk a little bit more later when we get into it. Rachel is the pastry chef at Woodbury Kitchen, but I know that uh, Rachel and all the food shed restaurants have been making concerted effort to reduce their use of refined sugar in their baking and cooking. And um, I have a long list of things that Rachel bakes. If, if you actually want to hear it, we can, I can give you that list. Um, but we thought it would be fun to hear from some of the farmers and makers who are contributing to this effort. And I'm really, really delighted to uh, welcome Joseph and Margaret Ann Burkholder um, to the panel tonight. I think they get the prize for traveling uh, the furthest for an Origins event. I think it was, what, four, four, four hours tonight. They came from Dayton, Virginia. And where's Hannah, their driver? I want to give a shout out to Hannah for driving. She'll be doing the eight-hour stint with them tonight. So uh, Joseph and Margaret Ann are, are sorghum farmers. And they're from Compass Wind Sorghum in Dayton, Virginia. And I'm just going to read a quote that I found, one of Joseph's quotes. Um, he said, sorghum moved west over the Blue Ridge with the pioneers. It was more adaptable to our climate than sugarcane, and it became the first sustainable sweetener of the frontier. So welcome, Joseph and Margaret Ann from and Hannah to the big city. <laughs> Uh, our next panelist is Chris Krantz, who's the owner of H.T. Krantz Honey Company in Frederick, Maryland. Chris started his company with two hives, and I think I'm wrong on this. I thought it was close to 400, but... Oh, yeah, the Woodbury Group buys so much honey that we had to we had <laughs> pretty much size over a, a few years. So. Okay, so the Woodbury Group buys all his honey. <laughs> his focus is mainly on bulk honey, package bees, and honeybee queens. Their queen bee mating program is at the heart of their success. Chris has kindly prepared a sample of his honey for each of you tonight. I think it was on your seat. 
Um, and you also have a sample from Woodbury Kitchen of uh, sorghum Cracker Jack. So you got lots of goodies tonight. Um, yeah, go ahead and eat. It's <laughs> <laughs> not shy. Um, it was meant to be, yeah. yeah it was go. supposed go to be like it. movie popcorn. <laughs> eat it while we talk. We have several other guests that um, I'm just going to take a pause here and, and we'll get into the conversation and then we'll come back and introduce some, some of our other guests that are in the audience tonight um, as we go. also want to welcome Rachel, who's the pastry chef from Woodbury Kitchen. And I uh, always like to thank the, the Origins team, um, Spike, Hannah Reagan over at the door, Mary Romeo. Uh, I thank Grace uh, Gillespie, who did our flowers tonight. Um, Lauren Paven-Jones, I said that right, <laughs> and her amazing team here at Artifact. We have uh, Chef Lou and Brioche in the kitchen tonight, and Spike will tell you a little bit more about what they're cooking, cooking up for us. And uh, I want to thank Donnie uh, for doing all the recording and engineering of our program. For those of you that are new, and a lot of you are, we are recording this evening's um, proceedings and conversation. Um, so. If you have a question, when the Q&A piece of, of the evening comes, if you could kindly raise your hand, I'll come around with the mic, and that just makes for a more sound quality recording. Um, so without further ado, I'll turn it over to Spike. Thank you. And I'm also coming back from a little of the whatever's been going around, but, but some tea and some honey. <laughs> I'm feeling better. Uh, this is a great conversation for us to have, because I have to say, it was you know when we started Woodbury, it wasn't something that was really top of mind for me as a chef. We were going to source locally, but uh, in all honesty, I don't think I'd seen um, um, much necessity around replacing sugar from uh, what we were cooking, you know, the way we were cooking and baking in the, in the restaurant kitchen. And over time, though, it became clear to me that there, was, there were really interesting things happening uh, around sweetness um, in our part of the world. And so we shifted our focus uh, away from granulated sugar and uh, move towards the three, the, what we kind of think of as the big three uh, that we can get locally, sorghum, honey, and maple syrup. And I'm really happy that we have, uh, between our, our guests today, uh, at least two of those very well represented. Um, we've gotten honey, I think, over time from many different sources, but Chris has, has become definitely our go-to. Um, and the quality is fantastic. He produces in bulk, which is incredible. Um, but we were also very impressed with his, um, with his practices. And, and your thinking around um, what you do was, was one of the things that really inspired me. And it seems like with Chris, we have one of those relationships where um, you know, he's kind of changed our world a li little bit. And in turn, it seems like we've kind of changed yours. Absolutely. Um, where I'd like to start, though, is where we usually start is just some, uh, I'm going to start with Chris. Because uh, I know once we get to Joseph, we might not ever get the mic back. And, uh, uh, but I'd like to start with you, Chris, and I'd like to hear really um, in kind of descriptive terms about your operation and what you're doing, where you're doing it. it you're in some interesting locations. I know that. Um, and it's, it's just really helpful for us and, and for, for our, our listeners to hear just what, is, what it is exactly that you do. Okay. So um, beekeeping. Some people ask me why on earth would you start doing something where you're just going to get stung a lot. So, so I'm like, well, it, it's, it's great because, you know, every, every plate that you have, regardless of, you know, where you're getting it from, at least two of those pieces on that plate come from bees as far as the pollination aspect. And like what? What kind well, of Well, I mean, anything that's melon, fruit, right. oranges. If anybody's ever had an orange it's because of a honeybee. If anybody's ever had an almond, it's because of a honeybee. 
um, there's not enough pollinators who are who are local to, to these areas. You know, like your bumblebees, your mason bees. There's not enough of those to actually pollinate the amount of food it takes to feed the United States population. So um, honeybees take in a big a big group of that. For you have a little hive here that's that's bumblebees. There's maybe 300, but in a beehive there's 80,000. So there's a big you know, big ratio there. So bees definitely do a lot of the pollination. Now, as far as my business is concerned, now people think, you know, you're a beekeeper, so you're in the honey business. Yeah, we are in the honey business, but it's actually more of a, it's kind of like a byproduct because in order for me to create bees and to make bees, you have to have the nectar from flowers and then they turn the pollen, which is proteins, and they put it together and that's what they feed their young. So when you get the, you know, when you're, when you're getting, um, the, the honey flow, which is you know the, all the blooms and stuff, that's what really spikes a, a, a hive into growing. But then on the other end is that they're bringing in hundreds of pounds of, of that nectar into the hive, so you have to grow. And so the the honey, so in order for me to make bees, the the honey gets filled in, and and it just becomes a byproduct. They have to you know fill into the hive. So um, so you know when I look at it from business, the honey is actually a byproduct because we do more of the beekeeping the queen rearing and and um and queens are something you can sell yeah oh absolutely and who, who do you sell them to uh, other beekeepers cool <laughs> so, um but we're not just in to you know just just selling we just making a queen and selling it. we're actually doing instrumental insemination so we're actually using instruments to inseminate queens based on genetics we have you know, different markers that we're looking for, different disease resistance. So, you know, you hear, raise your hand, if anybody's ever heard that the honeybees are in danger? That's pretty much anybody. Anybody you talk to, it's, uh, we're losing our bees, our bees are dying, and there, there's an issue. So we're actually taking, and we're selecting the best of our bees, and we're, we're grafting from them. When I say graft, we're actually going in, and we're, we're taking out larvae from, from the cells we're putting them into a queenless hive and they're going oh well we need to make a queen cell so they're taking that larva and they're turning it into wow to a queen so and then we take those and we put those out we have over a thousand mating so these little tiny beehives are about this big we uh-huh. put the cell in there they hatch out a queen that queen goes out and mates so but we're taking that queen before she is going out and mating and we're pulling her back so she's a virgin queen so we're actually extracting semen from these you know these hives the males we're taking right. those extracting that and then we're inseminating the best of the best so our you know our hives are only thoroughbred so it's a selective so breeding process. selective breeding yeah. process wow. that's really cool and um and you know but the nice thing about that is you know, the the honey when i say the byproduct i mean it's i love honey so uh-huh. don't, don't get me wrong no but, there's no doubt but about um, but that, you know, that pays for, I mean, I've got thousands of dollars in equipment and that, you know, that the honey helps drive that part of the business along. So it's, it's So where are most hard. of your hives located? And Frederick. Right now, everything, we just bought a bunch of property in Florida, which if you look at Florida as a whole, the very middle of it and down towards the lower part of Florida, is nothing but orange grows. So we bought property right in the middle of over 100 square miles of nothing but orange grove. If you ever heard of Florida's Natural, we just bought a little bit of their property there. So taking bees down there, they get started early. You know, here they're getting, well, today's a bad example, but to say three <laughs> weeks ago, they're, they're, they're getting our, you know, Maryland is the weather. We get the worst of all the seasons. You know, Monday we've got hats and gloves and scarves, and Tuesday we're in shorts. So right. it's not good for bees. It's, it's hard. So we uh-huh. take everything down there where it's a constant, nice warm weather. And then We'll bring them back up to Frederick when it's time for the 
blooms to start, and then we start making honey, and then they go back down for the winter. Just it's just easier. Everything survives. That are way. they pollinating orange groves there? Is they that, will be, yeah. And then up here, do you, are, are your bees pollinators as well? For they are, but I don't make that my business up here. Uh huh. Because up here, it's, it's we're making bees up here. Gotcha. That's really the the big gotcha. thing. Gotcha. So, and what is your production looking like right now? Like how much honey are you making? Uh, what do you mean, like? How much well, I mean, we're going to be about, the bees or, well, we're going to be about uh, 14,000 gallons of honey wow. will probably be the next, the, this year's batch. But th when I say, you know, when I talk about honey being a byproduct, I could literally make 15 pounds of honey this year, depending on the weather. If we get rain or if we get any type of a bad storm and it's raining when it's blooming, there's right. nothing I can do. Right. So that's I saw why. Rachel's expression just changed to like look look of horror. <laughs> Don't worry, I have so much stored away that we will have you know. But um, but I mean, there's there are some instances where I've got a hive that the you know year before it's made a hundred pounds of honey, and I've had where they've made one super which is twenty pounds of honey. So you know, like this year we were talking about doing comb honey, and I only gave you two boxes of comb honey when I had about forty or fifty boxes out there. They just didn't make the comb honey in time, so it's just, it's... I was wondering what happened to comb honey. <laughs> but you, you have that one frame that you took a picture of. <laughs> I was so with, happy like, with that. That's, the, yeah. and that's, you know, then there's just two boxes of it, so, you know, it's, we'll see how it goes this year in the spring. If we get really good weather, it's wet now, which is good, because uh -huh. it keeps the flowers getting ready to do their thing. Um, and actually, days like today are the worst thing for me, because... The warm. Buds, yeah. Buds yeah. will actually come out of, of right. flowers, and you'll see that... It's going to come out, and then if we get a, a freeze, those buds die. And the likelihood of that bud coming back is pretty much slim to none. So, right. you know, this everybody's happy about this weather today. I'm the only guy that's going, God, I hate this. And I'm like in the corner, you know, I'm like, no, please, no, 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 stay low temperature. So, well, well, I want to talk more about honey and bees, and I think. I think whenever you're talking about honey, we need to talk about colony collapse disorder and what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. But I want to bring in Joseph and Margaret Ann to the conversation. I really want to thank you guys for making the trip, uh, like Dana said. And I want to hear a little bit about what you got going down there, going on down there in the Shenandoah Valley. It sounds like more than just, um, more than just sorghum's being made on the farm there. <laughs> yeah, we make everything but money. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, um, well, Margaret Ann and I were just discussing I think um, this, this season marks our 10th year for uh, experimenting with sorghum. We're a little bit like doctors, we're still practicing. And um, so um, in our 10 year experience, uh, we've seen some changes. We've changed how we um, harvest the crop we change uh, how we plant the crop. I should have started with planting the crop. Um, and we still have changes on the horizon. You know, it might be good because I think, for me, sorghum is relatively, is the newcomer to this, this trio, again, of, of maple, honey, and sorghum as, as these three uh, locally sourced sweeteners. And maybe if you could just go back to the, the really the basics about what sorghum is yep. as, as a plant and mm -hmm. how, um, I think that would be, I'm sure there's something I could learn from that. And... Um, well, I, I told Dana earlier, I feel like it's very important, and I'm just excited uh, to have our other sweetener representatives here. <clears throat> we had a good discussion prior to the, to the little origins thing opening here this evening, and, and Dana and I discussed over the phone one of the most important things that, that I, 
uh, explain here this evening is that, okay, our label says pure sorghum molasses. Well, okay, everybody knows what molasses is. Um, it's available either sulfured or unsulfured. But the unfortunate part is 99% of, of what people know as molasses is a byproduct of the, of the refined sugar industry. And so when people walk into a market and see our jar sitting there, we live, we're Southerners, but we live right on the, right on the borderline. We're far enough north <clears throat> that to just sell sorghum syrup is a little confusing to those uh, Blue Ridge Mountain people who always refer to it as molasses. Well, sugar cane is used to make refined white sugar, and at some point, those crystals go into a centrifuge, and the molasses is slung out, the very best part of the product, and it's either fed to, to the animals or to the goofballs that are looking for a healthy sweetener. And, and the dictionary will tell you that any molasses, molasses is an appropriate term for any vegetable, um, extracted juice that has been concentrated to a point beyond which it will not spoil. So you could have pomegranate molasses, you could have watermelon molasses, you could have apple molasses, list goes on. So because we live in a, a region that fights over terminology, we, um, we stick, cling to, we cling to, the, to that word molasses because the locals, and that's anybody in the Appalachian region. I, I, I must have kind of claimed them as a brotherhood because, you know, the Appalachian um, lifestyle has been there always. And those people raise their sweet sorghum. Now, I'm differentiating sweet sorghum to sugarcane. Sweet sorghum is an annual plant. We plant the seed in the spring. It grows from mid-May until its harvest date, which varies quite a bit. We have 90-day uh, harvest interval. We have 100-day maturity. We have 120, 130, 140-day um, maturity dates on sweet sorghum. And if it's not frosted and killed, it will still die. So <clears throat> it's, um, it's always a little dance in the spring to figure out when the soil will be warm enough to sprout those seeds, get the, the slender. The, um, the sorghum seed is small. It's about like a pinhead. And it's hard to get that little sorghum plant up out of the ground. And it, um, it can't withstand much competition in the early stages. Those first couple of months, the sorghum plant grows slowly. And it's a very vulnerable plant. Then we, uh, as we move into the hot part of the summer, the sorghum plant does well and dry uh, with a dry season. It can probably get by with uh, maybe 30% less rain than your standard uh, agricultural crop. <clears throat> Toward harvest season, then, it uh, it's quite a quite a massive crop. There's quite a bulk of forage out there on that acreage. And, uh, and the goal then at that point is, um, unlike honey or maple syrup, 
with the sorghum molasses, I'm going to be loyal, <laughs> with the sorghum molasses, um, we have three sugars we're working with. We have sucrose, which is your sweet, bad for you sugar. You know, that's sucrose is what drives America. I mean, anything sells with sucrose in it. <laughs> you have your uh, glucose and your, what's the other? Fructose. It's fructose. And um, those will vary. Just like Mr. Krantz is here with his, with his, with his honeybees, we find ourselves um, very subject to weather patterns. Um, and, and you'll see a, a, a variation in the levels of these sugars as the plant matures. But it's our responsibility as, as harvesters, producers, to decide when we're at the point of diminishing returns. So at that point... Um, what are you looking at? Are you looking at the, the, the sap that's in the... In the we're, we are. We're, we're looking for a point. We know that sucrose levels are slightly higher before the crop actually matures. But sucrose isn't the only player in the game. And I can't explain it, but if I would go to the field and harvest the, the crop at the, before, the, before the, the sorghum stalk is mature, uh, it makes green molasses. Yes, and we also have to watch that if it's green molasses, it's going to taste green, believe it or not. And Can you it come up will, with some green recipes? <laughs> and it will probably get some sugar crystals in it. And we're selling a syrup. Um, if, if we sell a jar of syrup and six months down the road, it has a quarter inch of sugar crystals at the bottom, it's not the best thing because it doesn't melt like your refined sugars. Uh -huh. It has to be worked with otherwise. Right. So we want to hit that cane at the right level of maturity so that we get the right blend of sugars in our syrup so that it stays a syrup indefinitely. Right. And that, that's a challenge because uh, maturity, we used to tell farmers introducing, introducing our, our folks like Hannah because we live on a small farm and are unable to produce the amount of acres of sorghum that we need, we feel tickled, blessed to have people like Hannah here who are, are willing to raise on contract a certain amount of sorghum acres. Our oldest child is Julia, she's eight, and, um, and Julia and David and James Though they're very willing, they're unable to do a whole lot on sorghum harvest. So we need people like Hannah to bring us the crop. We tell Hannah, go to the field, check the color of your seed. Sorghum, sweet sorghum pushes ahead like a broom corn. And uh, go, go take your thumbnail and cut that seed. We need the seed to be um, no longer milky, getting kind of squishy doughy. At that point, <clears throat> We would like to see your, your bricks reading. Bricks, we, we interpret as sugar, but we know that bricks are actually solids in suspension. So when you go to the field and you crack the sorghum stalk and twist it and drip, drip, drip the green juice on your uh, refractometer lens, you're getting everything that's in the plant. 
And you need to remember that. You are getting everything that's in the plant. That is why I brought in the refined sugar industry. Sweet sorghum syrup is everything in the plant. You get the entire package. Nothing is excluded, nothing is filtered out. Um, so at that point, we'd like to see a BRICS of somewhere between 18 and 22% BRICS. The plant is then cut several days prior to actual processing. Natural enzymatic activity will take over in that stalk and it will uh, convert that sucrose. You may have a sucrose level of 75%, which is too high to be stable. You end up with marganan sugar in the bottom of your jar. We need to, to see the natural enzymatic activity, and it's a guess. I mean, it's a thumbs in a spender's guess. Um, you, you trust, you get several sunny days, and and you get a good wilt on your crop. You and know it doesn't rain while you have cane on the ground. Oh yeah, we're like Chris. We run out with umbrellas through the field, kidding. <laughs> um, and, and if it rains, you wait for it to dry back off. We're farmers, we don't apologize. Um, and at that point, those stalks then are loaded on the wagon, brought to the mill, and, uh, and run through our, our press. You don't have to crush your honeybees. No, no, we use extraction. <laughs> we run these stalks full length. Now the one thing we, you don't get and you don't want is the head. Um, and Chef Rachel knows exactly what starch does in any ingredient. The head is starch. Right. It's almost purely starch. And it will create a gelling process in our syrup. And there's nobody here that wants a jar of sorghum that comes out due to an excess of, of starches. And so the enzymatic activity not only changes the sucrose to the other reducing sugars, it also changes the starches that are present in the stalk back to other sugars. So the stalk is deheaded, the starch is left in the field. Then we bring the, the stalks to the mill, we crush it, and it's just a real pleasant pea green color. It gets uh, filtered. It gets pumped up into stainless tanks. <laughs> My little three-year-old boy was with me this afternoon. Daddy, where y'all going to talk to people about sorghum? What? Why do you need to do that? You just cook it. <laughs> and he's right. We preheat, <laughs> we preheat this juice in 300-gallon stainless vats. We have a steam boiler. We use steam heat, about 100 pounds of steam pressure, um, to, to heat our juice. It kills the bacteria, just like it would be in the uh, maple syrup industry. It is important to kill that bacteria as early as possible. You know, we have lots of bacteria present. So it goes through the mill, it gets crushed, the, the juice is pumped into our holding tanks, preheated and allowed to settle. Our, uh, our meal, our crusher, is aggressive enough that it, it, it actually the, 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 the crushed plant matter comes out warm to the touch due to the intensity of the pressure applied to it as it goes through the, the meal. So there's a good bit of organic matter in that green juice.
when it's preheated, those organic matters float to the top and serve as an insulating blanket. And if there's excess starches, those starches will settle to the bottom. And we have a little, we have a little standpipe in the bottom of our, of our tank that keep us from drawing those heavies into our, into our cooking pan. So at that point, it settles for an hour, maybe two hours, depending on how the ladies are getting along. Um, Whether we're waiting on him or not. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, with all my ideas, I'm prone to breakdowns. And uh, they never know what to expect. And I always joke to those who come to look through the sorghum mill, uh, the fall of the year, my wife and I only meet at the, at the third pan. We have a series of cooking pans. I'm out in the sorghum end, she's in the cooking end, in the bottling end, and we say hey when we see each other at the third pan. <laughs> um, Margaret Ann has is, is been our mainstay cooker. She cooks this down from, like I say, about, what did I say, 18 bricks? Just 18 wondered. to 22. There you go. <laughs> Um, and it starts to boil about a hundred and, and um, a two, uh, 208 degrees and you don't see that you don't see that change a lot till you get well down in the in the process not all of the organic matter will have floated out uh, and so the tourists love to come by we have a big flat paddle looks like a burying paddle and you smack it down on top of the floating mat of organic matter and it just clings to the bottom just like mortar to a mason's trowel and you scrape it off the edge and that's our way of removing those things as it goes down through our our cooking process then uh, five vats later our cook floor is about exactly the size of this room so it goes from spike all the way down to that end and by that point the ladies are checking on the temperature we need to watch two things. We, we realize that a bricks reading will tell us sugars. Uh, uh, no, it will tell us a concentration of solids, but we can't be sure that it's sugars. So for that reason, the ladies are checking the temperature. We like to be uh, about 78 bricks to 80 bricks, somewhere in there, which will give our, hopefully will give our syrup uh, a uniform viscosity, even though I have documents here where things were tested in a lab and you see somewhat of difference in the actual elements. The higher the sucrose, the slower, uh, the, the, the thicker the viscosity, the, the stiffer the syrup is, the uh, the lower the sucrose and the higher the other ones, it tends to be a little more liquid and, and, and the bricks can be different. Uh, the bricks may be actually higher, which is solids in suspension, but since the sucrose is actually lower, it will appear more liquid. At 200, and, and they check it every day, every batch, at 230 to 234 degrees, um, the syrup is going to hit a bricks reading of about 79. So we, we have a high-end refractometer, and uh, we check that, and we check our, our uh, temperature. Sorghum varies. We have a half a dozen different varieties. We have uh, 12 different farmers. 12 different farmers, that's right. And the soil, 
This man has, has sandy loam. This man has a heavier clay soil. The sorghum is going to reflect the conditions in which it was grown. The ladies can't just assume that, um, it yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't behave the same. The it different just, sorghums from different farmers and uh, different soils? Every day, every day we have to rewrite the rules. And it's okay. We're used to it. But you cannot assume that just because yesterday's cooked like this, today's is going to. Mm -hmm. Even if it gr was grown on the same farm, atmospheric conditions affect the sorghum? And uh, so at that point then, it's 230-some degrees, and, uh, and we filter it. We pump it through a 100-micron stainless filter. There still may be a grasshopper leg in there. We'll pump it through the filter, and, uh, and we run it through a little plate cooler because in the early days, ooh, so young and so naive, we, we would just take the syrup off and put it in a big old kettle, and we were so glad. Well, by evening, we might have 18 to 24 inches of sorghum foam on top. And while sorghum foam tastes fine, I have yet to meet a customer who wanted to buy any. <laughs> so that's a product we couldn't sell. What that means is the sorghum syrup above 180 degrees continues to cook and boil, and it generates a foam. So in order, and, and it also darkens. Those sugars continue to caramelize, the organic matter that may still be left in there, the mineral content, it continues to darken and caramelize. So we learn the hard way. It seems that everything we learn comes the hard way. Um, the expensive way, right? Yes. Um, we've learned to run that through a plate cooler, cool well water running through a plate cooler, drop that temperature to about 140 degrees. It'll still pull a seal on a jar, which, by the way, we do not ensure a seal. We shouldn't need to. You don't need to seal your honey, do you, Chris? Mm -mm. At the proper bricks, sorghum should keep in a crock. How else did the pioneers use it? They didn't put it in ball mason jars. They put it in a crock. They caught, hauled it across the mountains. And that's exactly where we are. So it handles nice. It flows nice. At 140 degrees, it'll no longer darken. It'll no longer foam and boil. But it handles nice. It bottles nice. What should I say next? That's a good <laughs> <laughs> well, can I, so you're you're one of your main tools is the refractometer. You're and right. And that's the same thing with me because right. if we don't have that tool, that, so and on my side of it, a refractometer tells me the percent of uh, sugar and water. So if you have 21, 22 percent of the uh, uh, water content in that, you know what I mean. I'm not making honey anymore. I'm making alcohol. So I'm either going to be on the distilling side, which Spike, this is, we need to talk about that maybe, um, getting into mead. But, but one of the biggest things is a refractometer is my best friend mm -hmm. when it comes to honey. When I'm, you know, it's slinging the honey out and I'm just grabbing honey, I'm putting on the refractometer, looking at it, yeah. I'm praying for that 17%. That's what you're looking for. 17%. Because I don't know about sorghum. But we, when you say leaving it out, um, we do suck in some moisture. Does, mm -hmm. does sorghum suck in moisture if, at all to offset your, your ratios? Not that I'm... Not okay, that see, I'm honey will of. do that. Honey will, like if I, if I left the bucket open in 90% you know, humidity Maryland, It'll, on the top, you're going to get a little bit of fermentation. Right. Yep. 
I don't know that we experience any of that. I don't think so. Yeah, well, lucky you. I can well, tell you it's that. Because it's so much more concentrated. Yeah. Our, our sugar levels are so high that, or our yeah, it's it's too concentrated to mold. Gotcha. To, to spoil. Gotcha. If it's properly cooked, we learned the hard way there too. <laughs> So Chris, what, one of the things that impressed me in previous conversations was your, the care you have for your bees. And I, didn't wanna, I think a lot of people are interested, as you, as you pointed out, in, in kind of the, the health of our, of our pollinator populations. Our honeybee populations are a big part of that. Do you have, and I'd like to hear about how you, there's a great account that, that Joseph and, and Margaret Ann gave us of, of kind of their sorghum production, which I love. I'd love to hear about how you take care of your bees, because that was one of the, the things that really- um, Pest management's the biggest thing. Um, when you talk about colony collapse disorder, you know, from a commercial standpoint, I mean, because I'm, I'm a commercial beekeeper, so I do it for profit. I'm not a hobbyist. You know, I don't have three hives in the backyard. And colony collapse is different for me than it is a hobbyist. A hobbyist loses a hive and they go, oh, it's colony collapse disorder, because they don't know how to look in their hive to see what exactly killed their bees. The biggest culprit of that colony collapse disorder is the varroa mite. The varroa mite came over from China, that's where it originated from, it's over in, in Asia, in that, that area, and um, it came over on some flowers, came over on some bees. We're not 100% sure where it came from. I thought over. it came from Australia. No. Uh -huh. th th that's where they thought it had come from, uh -huh. but the varroa, when they actually got into the, the dissection of the varroa, they found that that's just, that's, that's, yeah, uh -huh. everything came over. It's, and and the, the funny thing is some of the bees who are resistant to all of that varroa might all come from that, that region over there. So. That's where you when you talk about genetics. You, know, you want to pull those genetics from those areas that had that. Uh -huh. So, um, colony collapse disorder really is is stemming from the varroa mite. So the varroa mite is parasite. So it feeds on the host until you know that host gives it nothing else, and then it goes to the next one. And unfortunately, you know, with a bee, um, bees are very. It's a very socialist group, and if this bee says, "I don't feel good." there's a chance that I'm going to get other bees sick. That bee actually leaves the hive. They leave and they will go out and die out in the field because they're not going to stay and be sick in the hive. So, um, so when it comes down to healthy bees, it's, it's about pest management and it's about keeping that um, going without adding the chemicals. Right. Because, I mean, you know, I could, I could throw every chemical in the book at my bees and then yeah, I'm going to kill every mite, but my wax is going to absorb all of that chemical. So every time, um, you know, honey gets put into that cell, you're going to have wax that has the chemical in it surrounding that honey. So you're, put that down. So you're, so you're, you're, you know, your, your wax is going to get some of that. And the parts per million are low enough that you know it really isn't gonna it's just gonna show trace but i don't even i don't want trace I don't, yeah I, don't, I want a good product a lot so, of us don't. so we use essential oils in a lot of the stuff that we do uh -huh. um so we actually will take um a a crisco base and we'll put some essential oils in that um thymol it's which is an extraction uh -huh. from the thyme plant um <clears throat> is uh very strong it's very powerful if you t if you take time and then just you know run your finger across and smell it's like you know it, it really bites you so so that you know um that vapor in the hive will actually force the mites to to jump off of the bee it's like oh this is crazy you know they, it's too much huh. it's too much vapor so they fall down to the bottom and and we have um bottom of our hives actually have 
screens on them. So when they fall, they fall through and they fall to the ground. They don't make their way back in. Oh. Um, and so, and the, there's there's other methods that we can use to keep, you know, hives, um, you know, well. And, and that is to to split them. So when you have all those bees capped over, that's when the the uh, varroa mite is in its laying egg phase. So when there's a there's a young bee in there that's in the larva stage in the first 12 days, um, that's when they're getting fed off of. So we take and we pull, you know, frames out and move them into other colonies, you know, like new colonies basically, and then we put empty frames in. So we're spreading the mites out so there's not a, a big population of mites in that one hive. So, you know, when you can spread that out, you're, you're not getting that that high population of mites wow. in there. And what are your bees on mostly out what there in Frederick? Um, what flow? Trees. So we get the early flow, which is the one that comes every five years if we're lucky, is the black locust. That is the best honey you'll ever have. It's water white. It will literally look like that. You know, so um, it's the sweetest. I can get $12 a pound for it, but we never get it. So it's, but we get a mixture of it because it, it always rains that week. Uh, tulip poplar, we get a lot of, I mean, I get alfalfa because, you know, all around us are all alfalfa farms. So I get a ton of that in there, which adds to it. Uh -huh. um, and then just the, the basic wildflower, dandelion. You would never think that dandelion is, is a good provider of anything but weeds. But no, it actually is the staple of the start of the bee season. Really? 100%. As soon, the second that I see a dandelion, I'm jumping up and down going crazy. Like, yes. And people are like, you're an idiot because that's the worst thing you could ever have. It's like, no, no. When you see that, that means it started. That means everything is, is starting to roll. Rachel, you're here. Uh, I'm really glad you made it over. Thanks for coming. Um, and as Dana mentioned, you made us a great little snack. And you're, I wanted you here because you're the person, I think, that at Woodbury uh, that's probably doing the most with these things. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what it's been like. So, as I said, we didn't really start with an emphasis on these on these sweeteners. And since you've been there, it's really become kind of the mainstay of our baking. Yes. And um, do you have that list? Do you want to? I do. Uh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> three to four. Yeah. I'd like because it's it's pretty cool. And the other thing I'd like to mention before um, is that Corey at Woodbury has done a tremendous job of transitioning the bar away from uh, uh, refined sugar, and he's he's okay. wholly embraced the. Yeah. Maple, sorghum, and... 100% um, yes. in the bar right now, yeah. Kind of inspired us to get... get but if you, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear. Because, again, I think... And the reason I think baking is so crucial is because it's, it's really, the, I think, the, the toughest thing to do is to take... We're so dependent on sugar, as, as Joseph kind of pointed out. Sugar is, is kind of drives a lot of what we eat, what we like to eat, what we think we like anyway. And it's been your kind of challenge and, and your success, I think, in, in getting a lot of sugar out of our baking. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so um, most of the things that we bake um, either have very little sugar in it or no sugar at all. Um, but I found it pretty hard uh, making this transition because, um, you know, your final product or your batter or your, your ice cream base or whatever is going to be a little bit more liquidy at that point. So you have to kind of adjust to that um, so that your final product does come out the way that you want it to. Um, so just to go over a few things that we use honey for. Um, uh, ice cream base, so um, kind of adjusting to um, the right sugar bricks for the perfectly smooth, scoopable ice cream has been an another challenge also, um, which we also use a refractometer for. Um, so we use honey in that uh, along with some other sugar, uh, refined sugar as well. Um, we make a wonderful uh, whole wheat honey 
bundt cake, which is 100% honey, um, is very moist, uh, puffs up really nicely. It's not too like liquidy. It's not like I'm eating mush, but it's it's very nice. Um, honey caramels is also another thing that we're using 100% honey for. So your soft, chewy uh, caramel candy, um, we've definitely found a way to make that. Um, the one thing that I think I'm most proud of is the honey caramel sauce. Um, so caramel doesn't have to be, <laughs> don't worry, I'll get to you guys. I have a lot of sorghum things too. <laughs> uh, caramel, like it's sweet, but it doesn't have to be like so overpoweringly sweet that like it hurts your teeth. And, and I think we found that in this and it's, it's very high fat. Um, so we're using cream and honey. Um, and it's really like uh, floral and, and, and toasty because you're caramelizing it. And then it's also sweet and caramelized and uh, it's really wonderful. Um, honey pie, so I made honey pie for y'all's dessert tonight um, using some honey and buckwheat honey, uh, wildflower and buckwheat. Um, so that still does have a little bit of sugar in it, but mostly honey. Um, uh, it's also one of my favorite uh, little honey desserts that we do. Um, we do love that buckwheat honey, and it doesn't come around very often, which is no, makes it even more precious. No, we, lo- we were talking about the buckwheat. We lost buckwheat like you have. We had a we planted an entire uh, field of it, and mm-hmm. we actually got a bunch of uh, snow on top of it. Right. Last year. So, so right. So this year we have yeah, a we so have we, two buckets we, of honey some, there. We, got some this year. we didn't get it last year, so we're all in the pastry kitchen, very excited for that. Um, Spike has shared a recipe with me uh, for a spice cake, actually, and that is also 100 percent honey and milk for the liquids and the sweeteners. Um, We make buttercream frosting with honey. Uh, We make a breakfast bar um, that includes like 90% of all the grains that we get and also honey and sorghum. Um, We make, uh, for the CMP, we make our wet nuts with solely honey and water as our syrup that goes into it. Um, But once again, uh, you know, we use honey in almost everything, um, especially in the summertime. Uh, when we're making our fruit pies and we're getting like strawberries and blueberries and it's all coming in and we're all, you know, pulling our hair out because we have so much fruit to process, but it's really the best time. Um, a lot of that does have honey in it and we use honey, uh, primarily. I mean, we don't think we put any sugar in it at all. Did you make a meringue with honey the other time? Uh, yes, I have made, um, uh, pavlova with honey. Yes. Um, and it does, the one thing about not using sugar, I found, is that it makes everything a little bit softer. So when you're cooking, like, uh, candies and you're taking it up to hard crackers, softball, or what have you, like, your final product is always going to be slightly less than what sugar would give you. So that honey pavlova is only going to last a couple hours before it starts weeping. Um, And so I'm going to work on that one, try and get that one nailed down a little bit better. But, um, yeah, yeah. so you really can't do it all without, without sugar or light sugar. Um, sorghum, um, we get some really great uh, cracked rye in, and we take your sorghum and we make ice cream base out of it just to uh, kind of flavor. So the small amount of sorghum that goes into this ice cream base will flavor it tremendously. Um, and it goes really great. Those like two really dark, earthy flavors, rich flavors go really great together. In the wintertime, um, apple pie filling. So we run apple pie at Woodbury, and it's, it's delicious. Um, it starts with a, uh, you know, a crate of apples getting sliced up and soaked in sorghum syrup, and then we take that, cook it on the stove a little bit, and then put it into a pie. Um, it really is great. Uh, <laughs> um, 
Another really great thing about the sorghum syrup is that it acts really well as a glaze. So, you know, um, all of the morning pastries that you see here at Artifact are going to be glazed over with uh, sorghum syrup, which will add flavor, <clears throat> excuse me, and a little bit of um, uh, shame to everything. So it makes it look a little bit more attractive to the eye. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, also, you'll find here a bran muffin, which uses a variety of our grains, and then it is solely sweetened with sorghum and honey. Um, yeah, there's no there's no other sugars in that. That one's also really great. I know that's one of your favorites. All time. Um, <laughs> um, we also make so uh, along the lines of molasses. You know, everybody's like favorite cookie is molasses crinkle. Um, no, it is not. It is now sorghum crinkle. <laughs> so we've taken that. Um, so, you know, I'll use sorghum in any instance that I would use molasses in, and it's ten times better every single time. Um, so that sorghum crinkle cookie you'll find here, and then at Ar Ar Woodbury you'll find um, like a shortbread cookie, so just a very simple flour butter sweetener cookie um, that we make with sorghum, sorghum syrup, and uh, it accompanies uh, coffee really, really well. Um, and you can also make, um, let's see, we make a sorghum toffee sauce, so we're cooking sorghum, butter, and um, something else, butter, sorghum, oh, a little bit of vinegar, a little bit of sugar, um, to hard crack and then adding cream to that and that makes a really nice sauce for, um, similar to like a caramel sauce. Um, so your Cracker Jacks, pass this out. So the Cracker Jacks that you're enjoying right now are made with um, sorghum syrup, um, fish pepper, which is great. I like to incorporate little savory things into our, our sweet things as well. Um, let's see. So maple, the one thing that we haven't really hit on right now, um, the other sweetener is is also really great. Um, we can make puddings out of it. We can make that same sorghum toffee sauce. We can substitute the maple into it. Um, we've even uh, taken it a little bit further and tried to kind of um, duplicate sweetened condensed milk. And instead of adding sugar to that, we've added maple. And so you just reduce that down until it's like a syrup consistency and we use that and uh, essentially as sweetened condensed milk or as milk in a lot of our recipes um, and then um, maple toffee candy like all those like hard candies that you can eat um, honeycomb candy which just the structure looks like honeycomb has honey in it as well um, yeah I mean can I ask you a question sure so um, when as far as the Honey is concerned. My, uh, honey has a flavor. Yes. I don't know, you all can open it up. Um, but sugar really doesn't. Sugar is just, to me, is, is sweet. So where does the, the honey and, and also the sorghum take, where does it take the, the dish to? I mean, where does dish, it? I mean, you know, if you've ever had a dessert at Woodbury, I, I think you would know that I'm not really like a sweet pastry chef. Like, I don't, you don't need your dessert to be like overly powering sweet. And I look at honey maple sorghum as, as, you know, pairings to what you're putting it in. So apples and sorghum go really great, great together. Um, maple and peaches go really great together. So you're just, you're just taking, you know, your peach or your berry or whatever, and you're just accenting it with the, with the sweetener. So yeah, I mean, you're sweetening it, but you're also adding another like depth of flavor to it. And probably using less, I think is, yes. a, good, is a good point mm -hmm. overall, because you've got this flavor thing happening mm -hmm. and it's, it's the, we love sugar, I guess, because it doesn't have flavor. I don't know. I guess people love vodka for the same reason. <laughs> but we're gonna. Uh, we have some other people to talk to. But I want the last thing. 
there was one question I had for you, which is, you mentioned caramelization. Is that why sorghum molasses is brown? Is, is caramelization is happening through the cooking process? Oh, definitely. And that's it? Definitely, and because I was gonna come, actually I have photographs in here uh, from the national organization, and the higher the sucrose is, in, or the higher the bricks reading, um, the, the less we find it necessary to cook it. Obviously, we're nearer our objective when we start. So, so your lighter syrups tend to be sweeter because there's a higher sucrose content and it required less cooking. Sugar uh, is insulted very easily. Um, it, it's delicate. And to subject sugar, the sugars that are in sweet sorghum, to that type of heat, the more prolonged that exposure is, the more caramelization right. you would expect to find. Right. And so in years of, in, in years or, or plots, of a low sucrose sorghum stalk, your result will be a darker, uh, less um, sugary result. Because you are, you must concentrate these solids in suspension that much further before they register 78, 79 percent. Right sugars and <clears throat> the lower the sugars are <clears throat> in that given juice the more cooking it must take which is why um, in rainy seasons we really struggle to make a nice light palatable table sorghum because the the cloudy weather sun on the plant leaf is sugar Cloudy weather, dilution by rainwater, keeps our sugar bricks low. And so at a, at a juice reading of below 10 bricks or 10% sugar, it's hardly worth cooking the sorghum juice to a molasses because when you get done, it'll be good for only seasoning, a, a robust seasoning for meats, Barbecuing, right. that type of thing. It's not going to be something that you would. It's not going to be something she's going to want. No, it wouldn't be. It, it would be. It would be the more the meat side, and 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 uh, and that deserves honorable mention. In my opinion, sorghum is one of the best um, complements to a roast of meat that there is because it comes with its own flavor that is so compatible with many of your meats, your roasts, your barbecue sauces. Don't leave thinking sorghum is only a pastry chef's sweet. They won't after the supper we're gonna have. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, I guess, real quick, between the two, between honey and sorghum while we're here, and I think I, I sometimes leave this out, is you mentioned earlier that you know, the, the sorghum, you're crushing the cane and you're getting all that's in the plant. Mm -hmm. And what, what ends up, so there are really great things in that syrup, right? Absolutely. Other than the, like what else is in there? There's, There's a lot trace minerals. Right. Actually we have, and, and uh, due to my 
um, this order, uh, of course it was impossible for me to find a brochure that has a breakdown of the nu nutrient content, vitamin, mineral content in sorghum syrup. It actually packs a powerful punch. That's why I said that in the refined sugar industry, they throw away the best part of the package. Um, and, and sorghum grows a heavy root mass, and so it feeds heavily off of the soils. And, um, and whatever mineralization, the Shenandoah Valley, which is where we live, is a very uh, intensively farmed area. Our soils are uncommonly high in nutrients. That is why we struggle to make a nice, light, pretty, clover honey quality sorghum. Our soils are so nutrient dense. But the good thing is, when you're eating our sorghums, if you can stand the flavor, you're getting a good nutrient punch <laughs> along with that. Great. Same, same thing. Yeah, right. I mean, it's that, so if you, look at, if you look at this honey, I mean, it's, you can see through it. Um, but if you take buckwheat honey, it's like you have a thing of molasses. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you're actually seeing those, those minerals. Those, those, you're seeing everything that's in it. And like you're saying, is the second you heat it, you're, you're, it's all gone. I mean, it's, you're, it's, right. you know, you, you're bringing that out with, with honey at least. I mean, you guys heat yours, but with honey, the second this reaches above 125 degrees, you start losing the enzymes that are in here, mm -hmm. and it just becomes you know just liquid sugar at that point. So, um, you know, you can look at it, and when you see some of the color in it, you're actually seeing the, the good stuff. And um, so, Penn State did a study. They took it was like 600 or so people, and they gave them buckwheat honey. Uh huh. And then they gave them cough syrup. The, the people that took the buckwheat honey actually fared better than the cough syrup because of what's what's in it. And you know, a lot of people don't think of honey when you start getting that scratchy throat. Make a hot toddy, or <laughs> I mean, throw some you know, throw some honey, honey and yeah, and just. Scoop honey, and, and the more honey you you scoop, obviously, great for me, but but it's but it's it's but it's really good for your throat. It really does. It it it, it coats it, and I mean, my kids. I mean, I have a five year old and a three year old. They they get sick, and people think I'm crazy, and I'm just like shoving honey down their throat, and they're bouncing off the wall. But but the thing is, they feel better though. They they do. They feel a lot better. And um, you know, Spike here just got over some. And he's throwing. Get all the honey I can. I mean, I mean this is, you know, and and when you talk about honey and the quality, so you see this honey here. This honey's been sitting around for a little bit. You guys, I don't know if you can see it, um, but it's got. I promise I won't drop this on you, Rachel. But it's got some crystallization mm -hmm. in it. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. So that means that this is good honey because a a refined honey, a honey that's been processed, that's been, you know, treated like milk, it will never. It will never do this. So, because my honey is raw, I never heat my honey to above what it would see in the hive, which is about 93 to 95 degrees. My honey stays at that temperature range from the entire time, and that's what keeps those minerals, those vitamins, and all the good stuff that's in honey. That's what keeps it in it, right? Versus letting it go. Great. All right. So, um, we have a couple of uh, great guests in the audience tonight. I just wanted to recognize, we actually have a, an Origins alum, <laughs> if there is such a thing. Um, we have Alex Weiss in our audience. He's from Caledonia Spirits. 
and the drink, the punch that you've enjoyed tonight has, has I think it has the Bar Hill Gin in it, if I'm not mistaken, which we love in our household a little bit too much. Um, so I'll just give you a quick, quick background on Alex with the broken leg. Um, he started his journey into distilled spirits via a degree in botany and a fierce love and respect for agriculture and the relationships humans forge with their environment. After a two-year stint studying the subject in China, Alex moved to New York and began managing sales for a grass-fed beef producer. Eventually, Alex was approached by, a founder, by the founder and master beekeeper for Caledonia Spirits to come on board as a brand ambassador. Fast forward, um, you're probably in many more states now than it said here, but you were in 29 states and five countries back then. Um, they're based in Vermont, and uh, you're up and down the East Coast, maybe even further at this point. But I'll let Alex just talk a little bit about um, Bar Hill in Caledonia. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Um, so we, I guess I was invited here because we were founded by a beekeeper, and we make spirits from honey. So um, we use raw honey as the base of our vodka. So essentially the, the process is the same of, as any alcohol. We ferment the honey with water. Uh, it's basically just honey and water and yeast. And uh, we ferment it to about 14, 15% ABV. And then we distill it. Um, and we only distill it twice. And we don't do any charcoal filtration at all. So, you know, not to go into vodka too much, but most of the time it's all about how many times distilled and how many times filtered. But we kind of go the opposite direction because we are using a very expensive sugar, uh, which is pure raw honey. And um, so honey is, you know, just from my perspective, it's been really interesting to learn uh, about the process and to work with our distillers. It's been a bit of a scientific experiment. Um, as you both mentioned, honey and honey changes. Uh, changes year to year. It changes uh, from, you know, terroir to terroir, or basically the region where it's coming from. And so um, I just know from uh, doing this over the years and talking to our distillers that one of the really fascinating challenges that I would have never expected from fermenting and distilling honey has been the discovery that the yeast react differently um, depending on the honey. And that's because honey is rich or poor in certain key nutrients like nitrogen and potassium. And in one particular case, you know, an average, an average fermentation for us used to take three and a half weeks. So that's just a regular temperature fermentation of raw honey, raw honey and water, yeast, yeast are converting the sugars into alcohol and carbon dioxide. So that would take about three and a half weeks. Compare that to continuous, you know, fermentation of a regular, you know, Tito's or, you know, ethanol plant in, in Iowa, which is happening in hours or less. Um, but... Uh, we, we actually came into a p place where we had to go elsewhere. We normally work with one f family in central New York who produces pretty much all of our honey, but they did not have a good harvest. So we had to go elsewhere. This was years ago to get honey. And this honey would not ferment. And, and we had no idea why. And we, we did some analysis. We ran it through the mass spec and all that. And we just 
discovered that it was extremely low in potassium. And so we were able to up the potassium level and the yeast were happier and they started to ferment. So, you know, that's a that's one story about about honey in our in our company. Obviously the origin of our entire company starts with beekeeping and all that. So you said you wanted to make mead. That's what we did for years. Um, and uh, yeah, so mead, mead is fun. It's it's fun industry, but more people are drinking vodka and gin, I think, than yeah. are drinking mead. So we yeah, we are. we upgraded um, <laughs> to a higher to a higher ethanol to a higher alcohol content. Um, but yeah, and then um, I actually brought some of our honey too. So it's it's just amazing. I just love it. Like I have so many different types of honey at home. I love to collect it uh, from different places, and it is completely a different color from your honey uh, darker or lighter well it's it's pale but it's it's completely opaque okay uh, it's very almost crystallized and creamy but it's not been creamed or anything mm-hmm. um, and it's it's goldenrod heavy oh, okay yeah right. so it's that goldenrod color that quintessential goldenrod color it's a very bold goldenrod it's funny when when the goldenrod blooms in when you walk up to the hive, it smells like dirty socks. It really, it's just disgusting. You think, well, are these bees diseased or whatever? No, but you, but you take your finger and you dip it in. It's like, this is a buttery honey that's amazing. So that's the way I feel about buckwheat honey. I feel like buckwheat honey is like, is like digging through the horse manure. And it, and, it, and it really is amazing. Uh, just like you said, trying one type of honey after another. Uh, it, it, it becomes very different. Anyhow, so uh, there's some of our honey, too. And then our gin, of course, is also made with honey, but we don't ferment, ferment it in this case. We're adding it after distillation. So it, instead of uh, ferment, you know, the way the vodka is made, the honey is completely fermented to zero sugar, uh, the gin will have residual sugar. So it's a nice, different style compared to um, your London Dry style. And, and what we're all about in the distilling world of American spirits right now is ending the tyranny of import gin. And, uh, and uh, Spike and the crew and Corey at, at Woodbury Kitchen are certainly helping with that. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Alex. I can attest. It's, it's very tasty. <laughs> it's not a commercial. So do you want to do some questions yeah. here uh, for, for our uh, sort of a honey? Skinny girl. <laughs> Just wondering, um, this is addressed to our sorghum family here. Just wondering, uh, you said that you discard the heads in the field because they contain starch. Is it possible for you to somehow retain the heads and then sell the sorghum as as a grain to be used f- for food? Sorghum is, uh, the sorghum heads have been used for lots of things. Uh, sorghum flour is uh, a non-gluten flour that's become popular in some areas. Cracked sorghum uh, uh, grains as a cereal. Um, there are uh, teas that are made of the of the sorghum head. Uh, so yes, actually you can even pop sorghum, and it's known as popgum. And it's <laughs> Granddaddy Joe is ninety, almost ninety-four years old, and he likes popgum because there's no husk. Isn't and that a different plant, though? A different variety? It is a different variety, but yes. you can pop sorghum. Pop we sorghum. have done uh, it. Okay. But what I prefer to do is uh, run it through my little machine and convert it to bacon. Sorghum makes wonderful bacon if fed to the pigs. <laughs> and, you know, but in essence, really, what is sustainability? The chickens are out there. You know, we have our little, our family 
pigsty and, and the pigs run around and root and fall the ear, I get a quit feeding them. Why? Because I cut those sorghum heads off. If they come to the mill with the sorghum heads there, they get cut off with a chainsaw, scooped across the fence, and the animals scratch through them. And spring comes, um, there's nothing left. That has been converted into a useful, usable product. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Good. <laughs> My question, I think, is for Rachel, but how do you decide if you're taking a regular recipe that calls for sugar um, to add honey and have it turn out the same, or is it an extensive trial and error, or how would you do it, like, in your own, like, how would we do it in our kitchen if we were following a regular recipe? Well, I would suggest first off is to, you know, if, if you have a recipe that's, like, grandma's whatever cookies, then, you know, just, you know, maybe divide it in half and, and just test. I start always with, like, you know, half sugar, half half honey, or half alternate sweetener, and I see how it goes from there. But if you're on the Internet and you're looking for um, a recipe to try, like, and there are tons of them out there that have, you know, already done the work for you. Um, and you can kind of go from there, too, and have maybe a little bit less trial and error and, and more success. Definitely start at the half and then move move either way, yeah, because you don't want to go all in and, and end up with a goopy mess or something, but yeah. Um, I'm a huge fan of buckwheat honey, and <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious, the dramatic color change, unlike sorghum that's from the caramelization, what makes buckwheat dark? Because even the flowers are the... It's the white, white, the white flowers, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the nutrients that it pulls out of the ground. Um, it literally is it's just it's the, the chemical makeup of, of the nectar when it comes out. And like I said, you're seeing a lot of those nutrients in there. Is the nectar darker? Oh, it's, it's black. The nectar is... Oh, oh, oh no, yes, it's, it's, well, it's, it's not black like it is in the, in the bucket. But if you take your hand and grab a, which is when I can tell when we're getting ready to, to uh, you know, get the pollen or the uh, nectar flow, you put it in your hand, you actually, it'll leave a residue. The, the, the buckwheat buckwheat will, yeah, it will leave it will leave a residue so yeah what you're seeing are the good things that's in buckwheat honey um, there's I'm not a honey expert there are there are there are definitely better um, responses to that and they'll actually give you the percentages of all the different trace elements that are in buckwheat honey um, and it's very interesting to read I mean th that Penn State study has a lot of that in it and I mean it's it's you know it's uh, like six or seven pages worth of, of really good information. Nobody has questions about bees? <laughs> One of the most fascinating... No, I'm not fascinating We might insects. just be hungry. That could very well be. <laughs> the only insect that creates a food for humans is the honeybee. Oh, yeah. No, it was about the fact that you are selectively breeding. That is correct. I just think that's fascinating. And maybe you could go into how the heck that works. How much time do we got? All right. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> it's, it's really, it is, it's when a queen mates, so a, a open air, when I say open air, which means she's not in the, we don't knock her out, we don't do anything. She goes out and she mates. In one night, one day, she'll mate with up to 20 different drones. So, she, and she mates once. And that 
the semen that she gets when she mates is enough to last her four years worth of laying eggs. She only mates once, she goes out. But the problem is, is that she's mating with, you know, maybe this guy's got good bees, this guy's maybe got some mutts, and this guy's got some of the worst bees you've ever seen. And then when she comes back, she's just not a very good producing queen. She's not making 1,500 eggs a day. She's maybe making 300. So it's those colonies that I go into, and I'm like, good Lord, there's... There's there's more every cell. If you look at a, you know, if you look at a frame of, of um, you know of honeycomb, every cell has got an egg in it. That's amazing. I mean, you got to think a thousand to fifteen hundred eggs a day a good queen will lay. So that means that 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 every day fifteen hundred bees are dying from that colony out in the field, but fifteen hundred more are are hatching out, and. Um, and the fact that she can do that day in and day out is, is, is amazing. So what we're doing is we're taking hives that I know have high mite counts, and they're doing well. So I'm like, you know what, that's good, that you're being subjected to all of these diseases that mites carry, but you're still doing well. So I'm going to number your hive, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to graft daughter queens from you, and then I'm going to go to another hive, and, and I'm going to take those males that are, that are equally good, um, and, and put you together. And then I'm going to make 15 or 20 queens from that. And then I'm going to raise new, you know, new hives from that. And they go out in another yard. And I do the same thing. I look at all the markers that all the, the good things that are happening. I select the best from those. Um, you know, that's how the disease and, and the resistance to those happen is by just getting the best of, of everything. And, um, and like it's with these horse, you know, people, who, who raise horses are not just taking and going to get farm horses and taking them out. No, they're thoroughbred. And, you know, I'll raise, say, 30 queens, but of those 30 queens, you may get three or four really, really good ones. So it's just a matter of looking, you know, at each individual queen and uh, seeing what they do. Um, and, and surprisingly, a lot of people don't understand this, is that there's a lot of inbreeding with the honeybees because when a hive swarms, you probably hear swarming and maybe you've got, you know, a tree in your front yard that a, a hive had swarmed to. So they, what they do is they make a new queen because they're so congested with bees and they don't have anywhere to expand to. So the, the way they've progressed is that they just take half of the hive with them as far as the bees are concerned and that old queen and they fly somewhere else. And, you know, you have swarming that that gets your inbreeding because this hive may create another queen but mates back to the drones that were in this colony because they only went two miles. So that's the part that we have a, you know, a lot of the, the selective mating is to also keep from inbreeding too. Have you seen a, have you seen a positive impact on, on hive health over um, time? I, you know, this obviously didn't start with me. Um, right. Many years ago, when the when the high, when beekeepers who were commercial beekeepers had never even heard of this mite, had 5,000 colonies, and all of a sudden, three weeks later, they had 50. Something had to be done, so the bee lab in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, started trying to figure out what's going on. So they did that selective breeding program. Um, they send like we get semen from their their hives, and they send it up, and, and we we test it. And they, they do the same thing with a lot of the genetic markers at their lab. They're doing it way more advanced than we are because they can look at the genes of the, the bees and, and they have better ways to look at markers, but I'm not interested in 
spending eighty thousand dollars on the equipment to do that. But, um, One last commercial <laughs> before Spike talks about dinner. I just wanted to mention uh, the cheeses that you had before are um, from Joseph's brother-in-law. And there's a little brochure here. It's the uh, Shenandoah Valley Family Farms. I think that's a, a network. It's a micro co-op. A micro co-op. Um, so they're grass-based, certified organic raw milk cheeses. And you can all take a look at this afterwards if you're interested. Wow. just wanted to give that plug my kid's sister it's amazing <laughs> all right and just like that i think we i, I want to thank margaret anna joseph and chris for this fascinating look at these at these two crucial ingredients thank you guys thanks again for joining us tonight for our conversation at artifact coffee with special thanks to dana slater for producing the program hannah reagan for her masterful coordination and particular thanks to donnie carlo for recording this evening's conversation we're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you to them for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series. 